chilling. Truth. He killed 33 times. I'm the king, man. I decided who says what and where they do it at. Next time you see me. Yeah. All right, dude. We're on air right now. I'm recording. You're doing it. <laughs> we're, do- we're doing it. We're doing it. All right, guys. We're doing it. It is the first time we're doing it. So what's up, guys? And welcome to the Chilling Truth. I am Corey, and unfortunately, um, through a strange turn of events, Johnny is no longer going to be hosting the show. So um, I do have a new host already. His name is Chris. Uh, we've known each other for a super long time. We met uh, working at Vans, I believe. Right? Is where yeah. we That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, we met there, kind of the same as Johnny and I. And um, yeah, he's going to be hosting the show now. So this is Chris. Chris, if you want to say something, you can, or we can just move on. It's up to you. Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, super stoked to be here and you know go through this whole new adventure in life. Like Corey said, we've known each other for super long now. Um, through yeah, bands, footwear, and now murder. <laughs> And now murder, yeah, exactly. The the full a full circle. <laughs> so obviously, uh, obviously, this episode was supposed to be out on Saturday, but unfortunately, it didn't happen that way. And then uh, it was supposed to come out Sunday, and then the strange turns of event happened, and then it didn't come out Sunday, and so now it's going to come out probably Tuesday, uh, or I might just wait till Friday. I haven't really decided what I want to do yet. But anyway, we're going to be talking about Randy Stephen Kraft. Uh, his name really should have been Randy Tightface Dick Nose Craft. Cause you seen a picture of him? His yeah, nose is up. like fucking like this. Like it's like pushed down. He looks fucking ridiculous. Like he just looks like he's smug and wants to get punched in the face. Like he, he just has a punchable him. face for sure. Yeah, he really does. He really does have a super punchable face. Uh, but anyway, Kraft was an American serial killer known as the Scorecard Killer, the Southern California Strangler, and the Freeway Killer. He was actually, I think, one of three of the Freeway Killers. Not like there were three conducting the murders, but there were three killers that had the same name because I guess LAPD is not, or wherever fucking California is not very creative with names. Uh, but he was suspected of killing a minimum of 16 young men between 1972 and 1983, but his body count is suspected to be at a minimum. I just said that twice. At a minimum 16 and a maximum of 67. If it is 67, he does have the highest body count of any American serial killer. Um, I'm pretty sure. If anybody knows of anyone higher, I know... Uh, Willie Picton was high, but I think his was like 40-something. I can't remember what his was. Also, I think he has the most names of any killer. So I don't think, I've never heard of anyone who has more than yeah, like, like one or two. Hurricanes have less names. Than right, <laughs> exactly. I think that people, <laughs> I think killers have multiple names, but I don't think that they're really like published like this one was. Like all of these were kind of used at some point. But anyway, like we do, uh, we're going to get into his childhood, which uh, actually wasn't really that bad, surprisingly, uh, and then his early life, and then go into all the fucked up stuff right. he did. And I know we don't do disclaimers, but this one's pretty rough. Uh, there's a couple of tree branches shoved into people's asses, and so if you're not cool with that, then maybe don't listen to this episode. Or maybe not cool with it, but like I don't think anybody's cool with it. Uh, last time I checked, no... Mm-mm. No, yeah. I don't think so. <clears throat> so Randy was born in Long Beach, California on March 19th, 1945. My dog was chewing her paw. 
Uh, Randy was born in Long Beach, California on March 19th, 1945. His mother, Opal, uh, which is a very old-timey name. I've never heard of anybody with that fucking name before until now, except for that show, The Oblongs. I think somebody was named Opal in that. Uh, Opal Lee and his father, Harold Herbert Kraft, had three children uh, when their only son, Randy, was born. The family had moved out of California from Wyoming at the start of World War II. Uh, and Randy's father was a production worker, which I guess is like a mill worker or like a like a factory like, worker or something. Yeah, production like assembly line. Yeah, like an assembly worker. I don't know what production worker means. And his mother was a sewing machine operator because I guess you couldn't just get one before you had to go somewhere to do get to get it done. They were probably pretty big at the time. You probably couldn't just have one like in your house. But uh, he had a pretty average life as an infant. Uh, he did have a few accidents, though, that were pretty severe. And as we know, head injuries as a child uh, are never good. So protect your kids' heads at all costs. <laughs> uh, one time at the age of one, he broke his collarbone after falling from a couch. Uh, then when he was two, he fell down a flight of stairs and was knocked out, which definitely, definitely right. did some damage to him because you don't get knocked unconscious and not have any fucking issues, uh, especially at two. Uh, and upon like getting the, seen at a hospital, they deemed there was no irreversible damage, which I don't really believe because he woke up and doctors said, no, he's cool. He's good. Yeah. The same thing happened to Henry Lee Lucas when he was beat unconscious and he was unconscious for like three days. And they're like, no, nah, he's fine. He's awake now. Right. So he's good. He, he woke up, didn't he? I think that 1940 was it be 19, like 47 around that time. Uh, I think they were still like prescribing like cocaine for like issues so i don't think doctors really knew what the right. fuck they were talking about medical science was not where it is now yeah coke and soda or coke and coke coke and coke yeah <laughs> coke and yeah. coke yeah uh, i don't think they knew what like frontal lobe damage was at the time uh i don't know but i really don't feel like they knew uh, but opal always took on other jobs to try to supplement harold's income which i'm sure he fucking loved to have his wife <laughs> fucking like helping him Support. out yeah, I'm yeah. sure that pissed him off big time. Probably 40. hated his family. Yeah, 40s husband. Loved yeah. Working yeah, I'm sure he would call, He thought very highly of her. Uh, but the family lived quite modestly still. Opal took on these jobs, but still managed to find time for her children. But given it was the late 1940s, you'd be right in assuming that Harold did not do the same. Uh, he rarely attended any social gatherings and was even described as being distant from his family. Which is pretty... Um, a pretty big contrast in you know today's father i'm a pretty hands-on dad you're a pretty hands-on dad so i, I, I would, yeah it, i would like to say i'm, I'm pretty hands-on like and like just there every day but considering the time it's like that's not crazy that know? was just how it's it like, was this is how dads were yeah leave there it to beaver did not did not set the tone for fathers that he was very he was hands-on considering the time when was leave it to beaver was that the 40s or like the 50s I want to say Andy Griffith was probably 40s. and No, I think it was like the 70s. Was, Did they have TV in the 40s? I don't know. I have. I said it on the last episode. I have no conception <laughs> of time. I have no idea when things became real. I will say we talked about it on the last episode when the first microwave was invented, and that was 1945. So, uh... William Hirons didn't even get to use a microwave until he was in prison, so that sucks. Uh, but Randy was a clumsy kid, as we said, uh, but despite, I guess, knocking shit over and breaking shit, his sisters and mothers loved him. Uh, and in 1948, when Randy was around three years old, the family moved from Long Beach to Midway City, California. And while in Midway City, once Randy started attending middle school, he went to Midway City Middle School. You can't 
I'm telling you, dude, they're not creative. Like they might have LA, but they're just not creative with coming up name coming up with names back then. Yeah. Uh, but as a student, what's that? Where's this middle school? Midway City. What's this middle school? It's a middle school. Okay, we're gonna call it Midway City Middle School. It's ridiculous. Like I had aneurysm thinking of that. You could have just named it after a person. Like most schools are named after who? Who's the biggest donor gets their name on the fucking school? I know. Usually how it goes. No one has that money like around this time. Like, oh, there were rich people in 1940s. There were definitely rich people back then. I guess maybe they weren't building schools. Post World War II, though. It's like, yeah, I guess it's true. Yeah, you're right. Okay, I'll take that. Uh, but by 1957, at around 12 years old, uh, he was judged smart enough to start attending accelerated classes at 17th Street Junior High School, which I guarantee was on 17th Street. Just by, just by chance. Just by chance it was there. Uh, and by adolescence, Randy had taken an interest in politics and became a staunch Republican. Uh, he even ins- aspired to become a U.S. Senator. So I guess, um, I don't know, man, child Republicans are just weird to me you're supposed to be empathetic and nice as a child not a republican that's like the opposite like there's nowhere else to go you can't you, like you, i don't know he just he wears suit every day asks how the gop is doing it's and- just weird to have a child republican what is you have no problems in your life why are you hating other people so much <laughs> jesus but anyway identify a republican who does like no, like how did children identify? That's what I'm like, saying. I don't understand. Or, like, like a teenager, you're like I'm a Republican. Like you can't even vote, motherfucker. You can't do anything. What are like, you talking about? Like figure out who you are inside. And, yeah, yeah, like so you really think you're not going to experience anything from now until you die? That's going to change your outlook on life. Um, no, I'm just I'm, I'm just born, born born Republican. Born Republican. I was born in the U.S. of A. I was born Republican. Yeah, that's probably accurate. But now every kid born in California is already Democrat at birth or liberal. They're fucking liberals. <laughs> That's what they are. They just um, for the Green Party. Yeah, exactly. They're just never going to win. But anyway, so <laughs> by the time Kraft got into high school, his sisters had all gotten married and left home. <coughs> uh, his parents were both busy with their jobs and often left him uh, home alone. Uh, thus, Kraft ended up being an independent teenager who had the house, car, and earnings from his temporary jobs all to himself. Uh, which is pretty, it's just Dahmer territory. He did, he spent his last year uh, alone because his parents are going through that nasty divorce. And so, yeah, uh, he also went on to kill a bunch of gay men. So it's pretty uh, similar. Mom, mom said bye. Dad said peace. Little brother was like, no, nah, dude, you're fucking weird. <laughs> it kind of seemed with Dahmer, it kind of seemed like they, it seemed, I know it wasn't how it went, but it seemed like the parents both left and they thought that he was with the other parent and so he was just like home by himself. I know it's not how it went down, but it is strange how he was just left alone. Uh, when he started high school, he and two close friends started the Westminster World Affairs Club, which sounds like a fucking drag and a bunch of people who I don't want to be around who wear ties to school. Uh, but Westminster was the name of the high school, so I guess that's where it came from. But World Affairs, though? I don't know, man. It seems boring. Just join like a like, cool, join like an anime club or something cool. <laughs> anime, anime in the you know nineteen mid fifties. <laughs> yeah, they're all white. <laughs> There's no Asian people in it. Everything, everything is just about getting to Hitler and punching him in the face. Dude, I would love to see an anime about killing Hitler. That'd be awesome. I'm, I'm sure we could find. I'm sure. Yeah, if you're out there and you know a lot about anime, if you find an anime where they kill Hitler, <laughs> please let me know. I want to see that motherfucker die. 
So all through high school, Randy was seen as a pleasant and bright student who usually held an A average. That's actually pretty good. I will say I didn't have that in high school. Uh, and although he dated a few girls, classmates and teachers suspected he was gay. Uh, and they could not have been more correct. He was, he was super duper gay. But no, like, so realization, like post-graduation, teachers talk shit. Yes, they do. Of course they do. They're, they're people. Everybody talks shit about everybody all the time. I know, but like, just imagine how much you could say, because you get a new batch every year. Yeah, you just, they need to start a gossip corner. They, teachers should start a podcast where they just talk shit about their students. <laughs> just talk shit. Just I shit. would love that. That'd be awesome. Shit on the student Saturday. Yeah, shit on student Saturday. That'd be great. So right before he graduated high school, he started visiting gay bars without his parents' knowledge. So he was definitely gay. All jokes aside, he was oh, for I sure gay. Uh, but after high school, uh, he attended Claremont Men's College because there were colleges that weren't co-ed back then. Uh, and shortly after his enrollment, he enrolled in the Claremont Reserve Officers Training Corps, which is a fucking mouthful. Uh, and attended demonstrations in support of the Vietnam War. And, then, and in 1964, he campaigned for Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. Dude, I don't know, man. Like, the 60s, like, everybody's... I don't know, man. It just so, seems so, like if you're in support of it, like, you're just not a cool guy. Yeah. Like, you're just not cool, man. You know what I'm saying? Full leather jackets. No, you're just not fucking Royce. cool, dude. No, you're wearing suits. Exactly. You don't have long hair. You don't have the big, huge collars on your shirt. Your shirts are probably buttoned all the way up. I don't know, Sorry. man. You're a fucking loser is what you are. No, crazy thing is, though, Barry Goldwater, if I'm not mistaken, has a lot of ties with Arizona. Really? Like, Yeah. So, like, there's, like, I see his name, like, at the airport sometimes, like, on the building itself. Is it named after him? No, I it's believe. Sky Harbor. No, no, there's like certain buildings. With oh, they like sky. dedicated to them and shit. Like exactly. they did like George yeah. Bush is like has like, well, they have Bush Intercontinental Airport, but that's like the actual name of it. But yeah, there's like, I think he has super strong ties to Arizona. Well, Arizona is a very red state, so that would make sense. Not recently, though. Well, yeah, not recently, but hey, don't bring that up. People are going to get pissed. I know. Damn you, crap. <laughs> People are going to get mad. Uh, so he would later go on to say these actions were more or less to please his parents, and he didn't really feel this way. Uh, he said that his second year of Claremont, he abandoned his last grasp of his conservative ideology. This same year, he also had his first homosexual relationship, and I say, good for him. Good for him. Because, like, I mean, if you don't find yourself in college, it's like, it's going to be harder to find yourself later, because, like, life comes at you real fast when you get out of school. Yeah, and it's just like you know, it's like I gotta let go of this so I can be gay, gay. so I can like, be a gay, the gay guy I need to be, and that's great, yeah. honestly. If you're gay, just be gay. I understand that there's like you're there's outside forces that make you not want to come out as gay, but like if you're For gay, sure. just be gay, dude. Like, no, I don't. I love. I love it. It's great. If you want to be gay, I'm happy that you're yourself. That's what I say. So he went. He went from wearing suits to silk shirts. Yes. Ooh, silk shirts are hot. I will say that. That's nice. It's good stuff. So in 1964, uh, he began working as a bartender at a local Garden Grove cocktail lounge that catered to gay clientele. I will say one thing about Kraft's life is like it definitely goes in the stereotypical gay guy like order. Like he was a staunch Republican. Realized he didn't want to do that anymore. Became gay and then was like fucking 
all in as gay, like started working at a gay bar, like being a bartender at a gay bar. Like he's like the stereotypical gay man's like life that you see in like TV and shit is what happened with Kraft minus the 67 murders that he later committed. But like before that, he had a typical like you could make a movie about his life and you'd be like, oh, that's what gay guys do because that's what I see on TV. Not saying that I think that all gay guys do this. I'm just saying that's what's portrayed. <laughs> I gotta cover my ass. Classy save. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he was also known to travel to Laguna Beach and Huntington Beach to have casual sex with male prostitutes there. Um, I've known quite a few gay guys in my life, um, and it's not it's not hard to get laid as a gay guy. Like it's pretty. There's literally an app where you can see a, a dude who wants to fuck like two feet away from you. So I don't understand, but I guess back then it might've been different. A lot of people were gay, but didn't want to say they were gay. So prostitutes might've been the only way to meet up with a gay guy. Yeah. But he worked, he worked, he worked at a gay Yeah. I guess. Yeah, you're right. So I don't understand how you couldn't just like bang the patrons. I don't know, man. Maybe he just liked paying for sex. Maybe he was just like too frowned upon. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he was in that much money. He's like, I don't know what to do with it. He's Pablo Escobar of gay men now. He has too much money. He doesn't know what to do. He's burying his cash. He's burying like, oh, his, you know what? I will just... He's, he's burying his cash and burying his dick in guys' asses. <laughs> <laughs> so he wanted to come out to his parents, but uh, not exactly come out to them. So what he did, which is really passive-aggressive, I think... Uh, in an effort to let them know he was gay, he would bring different quote unquote male friends to meet his family during his years at Claremont. Uh, and his family was initially oblivious to his homosexuality. <laughs> I don't think they were. I think they were aware and they were just ignoring it. Yeah. Like, they didn't want to admit it. <laughs> I don't Randy, know, man. Male friends. <laughs> Randy has a lot of guy friends. It's pretty weird. He never brings any <laughs> girls around. <laughs> Super weird. <laughs> And they'll have nice hair. Shut up, Opal. Just don't even bring it up. <laughs> All right, Harold. I'm going to go mess with my rolling pin. I don't know what the fuck they did. <laughs> I just picture her in like nightgowns, slippers, and like hair curlers. Yeah, all the time. 100% of the, time. the time. She never changes. She's like a cartoon she character. She just never changes clothes. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, in 1963, he made sexual advances towards a male policeman who was in disguise, causing him to get arrested. However, it was his first offense, and so they didn't. They just let him go. They was like, "Don't do it anymore." I guess. Hey, don't be gay anymore. Don't or... you go being gay anymore, bud? <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm cured of the gay now. You know what? The policeman was probably wasn't in disguise. He, was, <laughs> he just didn't uh, want to come out as gay either. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, Oh, I'm gonna arrest this guy. <laughs> you know what? I'm not. I don't want to come out. I'm just gonna fucking arrest this dude. Yeah, <laughs> this is probably what happened. Uh, so four years after his arrest, he had a change in style. He began growing out his mustache and hair. Fucking sick. Uh, he also identified as a Democrat now and contributed to Robert Kennedy's campaign. So he's still involved in politics, just the opposite end now. Yeah. Uh, but he had frequent aches in his stomach and head, which led to prescriptions of painkillers and tranquilizers, which he would definitely use later on. Uh, not on himself as much. Uh, but he also uh -oh. took his medicine with beer, which I don't think you're supposed to take any medicine at all with beer. I don't think there's any medicine that they're like, yeah, you can just have a couple beers with this. Yeah, honestly, that it scares the shit out of me. I like, hate taking medicine. My, my mom scared me growing up about medicine that I'm going to die if I take like three Tylenol. <laughs> I'm fucking serious. One time I was hanging, I was with my mom 
and she was like, oh, I have a headache. And I was like, oh, I have some Motrin here. And I gave her like three. And she's like, oh, that's too many. I'll just take one. I was like, you're supposed to take two, first of all, not just one. What the hell? I was like, the minimum is two. <laughs> like, you're not even taking the minimum. It's going to do nothing for you. So I think just like sleeping pills, no, you can't take a bunch. Yo, Savannah is like, came in super clutch in my life. And she introduced me to like 800 milligram ibuprofen. Nice. And it like, like disclaimer, no drug addict type use, but like just after like a day, you're just popping them shits all the time. (laughs) That's what it's sounding like now, right? You're just like chewing them up. You're not even drinking them with water at this point. You're just like, (laughs) it's basically salt to me now. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Very nice. No, I have like, I get really bad migraines. So I have to take like Excedrin migraine, like specifically migraine medicine or like nothing else works for me. Like oh, it'll just be persistent. True. Yeah, it's a fucking nightmare. Um, so the consequence of his sexual flourishment, drinking habits, and drug uses or usage was the negligence of his academics. So it took an extra eight months before he finally graduated from college because all he did in his supposed last year was work, drugs, and gambling. Which, hey man, life's a party. All right. Only time I'm concerned with is having a good one. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, hey, he, he's still. Who cares how long it's it? Yeah, dude, you graduated. That's the important thing. Fuck these social timelines that people come up with. You it's fucking graduated. <laughs> That's the important thing. Yeah, I mean, it's taking me nine years, but you know, I'm trying to get my degree. You did it. That's the important thing. So really yeah. quick, uh, before we keep going, I did. I forgot to do it at the beginning, but I'm going to acknowledge the source for the episode, and it's The Scorecard Killer, The Life of Serial Killer Randy Stephen Kraft by Jack Smith. Um, it's only 100 pages. It's really short, but it's hardly a book. It's like a pamphlet. I read it literally in like a day. So that's where hey, all this comes from. Credit, credit to the author for sure. For no, good job, Jack Smith. No, I appreciate you very much. I'm just saying, like, you know, you can be a little long-winded. <laughs> like, maybe talk to <laughs> Philip Carlo and be like, "Hey, man, how do I write a 400 fucking page book with like eight <laughs> with like Dude. eight pixel font?" I swear, one. You, it's that shouldn't be a challenge. <laughs> it's a challenge. It's a challenge when you have two kids and you're going to school and whatever. We'll talk about it later. Let's get back to Randy Stephen Kraft. So it did take him an extra eight months, whatever. He still graduated, which is cool. So after graduating and passing the Air Force aptitude check, he joined the U.S. Air Force. And at the peak of his career, he made the decision to come out to his family. Uh, And as you'd expect, his father was fucking extremely upset about that. Uh, His mother also found it difficult to understand, but still showed him affection regardless, which I think, again, is like stereotypical situation of a gay guy coming out. The mom is like, well, I don't really get it, but like, I love you. And the dad's like, you're fucking dead to me. Like, I get that. Um, But uh, although the craft, I don't get it. Like, I don't agree with it. Like, I'm not going to do that to my kids, but I'm just saying, like, given the times, it makes sense that that's what happened. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We still got to, we got to be in the mindset of the time frame. Yeah. We got to transport ourselves to 1945. So technically, you and I wouldn't be friends because I'm white and I can't be your friend. (laughs) I'm probably beating you in the street with a stick because just because I want to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're probably, you're probably. Probably infantry. You got drafted, and I thought the draft. That's that's where we're at. Yeah, probably. I definitely got drafted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what the fuck. You're the one who's actually in the military, so shut up. Uh, so uh, <laughs> you. <laughs> that is true. I was like, dude, it'll be great, and you're like, you fucking lied to me. <laughs> oh, 
So although the Kraft family eventually accepted his new status, their relationship with their youngest child and only son was never the same. It was difficult finding work for, uh, for Kraft. Uh, he went through a number of jobs, a truck driver, a bartender, a dispatcher, and even a teacher's aide at one point. Uh, he'd been hoping to follow in his sister's footsteps and become an elementary school teacher, but that didn't work out for him either. And he was trying to get his life together after being discharged from the Air Force in 1969. And some say it was for medical reasons, and others say it was because he came out to his higher-ups. And, uh, yeah, you couldn't be gay back then in the military. And it's still probably frowned upon now because it's pretty... It's a strange place. It's like a different world. Oh, man. But finally, he got into computers, and not only was he good at it, but he also loved it. And computers were not as simple back then as they are now, I guess. Um, so now we're going to kind of get into the killings a bit. Uh, well, not the killings exactly, but there's going to be some bodies turning up right now. So on Saturday, January 3rd, 1976, at four in the afternoon, a nude man was discovered in heavy brush on the west side of Bedford Peak, the east end of Santiago Canyon in the Saddleback Mountains. The location was about 30 miles south of San Juan. How the fuck do you say that? Capistrano? Oh, I guess it was easier to say than I thought it was going to be. It looks more complicated. So what's weird is the killer had wrapped the body's legs around a small tree and left it slumped against the tree in the fetal position, which is hard to picture, I guess. And I read that line a couple times, and I'm like, how the fuck? Wrapped around the tree, legs left it slumped again. I guess like this, like, like his legs were around it, and then he was like, had his head on the tree. Yeah, but I always when I people say fetal position, I always think like you're on your side. Yeah, rolled up. So yeah, I guess I get. I have no idea. It sounds like a strange position, but the victim had long brown hair, a thin mustache, and stood five foot ten and weighed around one hundred and sixty five pounds. The man had died from alcohol and asphyxiation, according to the pathologist, at the time of death, which was somewhere in the early hours of New Year's Day. The body had the equivalent of five six-packs in the bloodstream, which is a fuck ton of alcohol. Uh, And that equates to a blood alcohol level of 0.67, which is seven times the legal definition of of intoxication in California. So that's fucking high. Uh, The level in his brain was just a bit less than 0.59, and there were traces of Valium and Diazepam in his system. So remember, we talked earlier that Kraft was on a bunch of prescription drugs and tranquilizers. So it kind of, that yeah. points this to him. But if the alcohol had not killed him, the loam of leaves that were packed into his throat had killed him. An autopsy revealed that the soil had been shoved so far down his throat that it reached his fucking lungs and the man had choked to death on dirt. Which is a fucking rough way to go. <laughs> how, how many handfuls do you think it took? At least three. I'd say, like, depending on the size of your hands. I mean, it's not hard to choke on dirt. I don't think it's dry. You know what I mean? Like, it's dry dirt. I mean, packing it in there. I don't really want to get into the actual motion of how he shoved the dirt down his throat. I think that's a little insensitive, but I hear (laughs) you. But before the victim had died, the killer tortured him. Uh, The man had been tied up with his hands and feet bound together, and he'd been stripped of all his clothes. A cigarette lighter had been used to burn him on various parts of his body, including his eyes, scrotum, nose, cheeks, and upper lip. A knife had been used to carve grooves in his skin, and some of the cuts were almost to the bone. Uh, He'd also been sodomized, and a swizzle stick, or a Twizzler type of candy, had been lodged in in his urethra, 
all the way to his bladder. I thought a swizzle stick was like what you stir your drink with. I looked up swizzle stick and Twizzler came up, so I don't really know if uh -huh. they even had Twizzlers back then. But what I'm saying is regardless of whatever kind of instrument it is, I don't want it in my urethra. I don't want anything going in there. Swizzle sticker, no. Don't need it. Uh, and I'm looking at you right now, and your eyes tell a different story. What now? I'm looking at you right now, and your eyes tell a different story. No, there is no way I'm into sounding. I'm so sorry to tell you. I'm not into that. <laughs> so as if that wasn't enough, his genitals had been cut from his body and placed into his anus. So, yikes, dude. It's literally just getting worse. Oh, dude. So more leaves and burn material were also discovered in his rectum based on the way the blood had dried. Medical examiners came to the conclusion that he had been alive through most of the torture. So holy shit, dude. Like, that's rough as fuck. That's really, really bad. That's really, really bad. So, yeah, this is very much like process killing it's oh fun. yeah 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 he is not a product killer he is a process killer for sure i mean a lot of most sadists are process killers i would say i think all of them have to be they definitely would all need to be um so the next one we're going to talk about isn't even a murder but it is a strange situation that Kraft found himself in and kind of put him on the cop's radar in the first place so Joey Fancher ran away from home in March of 1970. He was only 13 years old. Uh, he rode his bike up and down the street a few times before he noticed a man staring at him. To him, the man appeared tall and cool, uh, which I guess was, I guess you just judge people to be, no, he's tall and he's cool. All right, cool. I'll hang out with him. <laughs> I don't know how kids operated back then. Uh, he had sandy hair, a mustache, and appeared friendly. So the stranger asked Joey if he needed somewhere to stay, and Joey responded with a quick yes. He's a kid's 13. He's ran away from home. I'm sure he's like, okay, well, where am I going to fucking sleep tonight? You know? Uh, so then the stranger asked him an odd question. Had he ever slept with a woman before? Uh, Joey told him he hadn't because he's fucking 13. Uh, and the man told him he knew just the woman and the apartment where Joey could get a place to stay. So he's going to, he's like, you're 13. I'm going to get you fucking laid, my man. Like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> Right. But it worked because he got on the man's motorcycle and they went to his apartment. Uh, and they pulled up to a corner apartment building and he led Joey inside. He asked Joey if he'd smoked dope before and Joey responded with yes. And then they shared a joint and Joey complained he wasn't feeling well. The man disappeared for a moment saying he had something that would make Joey feel better. When he returned, he gave Joey four red pills that Joey obediently took. Uh, a bit later, he said he still felt the same and he gave him a four more. Joey felt drowsy and out of it and was unable to move his limbs. That's when his nightmare began. The stranger repeatedly raped him, telling him he would kill him if he moved or made a noise. And then he left his apartment. He left the apartment. Joey did. Um, and police actually investigated this, went to the apartment and everything, talked to Kraft, and nothing came of it. <clears throat> they just left it alone because it's the same thing that happened with Dahmer when the boy, when... Um, he escaped and then they're like oh this is like a gay lovers thing i don't want to fucking be involved in this you know what I'm it's like yeah, it's it homophobia again so uh, given how much information this book gives on craft's actual life which is great i love reading that stuff um i'm gonna assume that's not why most of you are listening to the show you want to get into the killings uh so we're gonna skip over a lot more a lot of a lot of his other life things that happened you know uh get straight into the actual murders and even though we're gonna get into the murders now we won't have time to go through each and every one of them because again there's fucking like 67 of them 
Uh, so we're going to talk about the important ones that indicate there may have been more than two killers because that's a really big theory uh, that he had help by his lovers. Uh, and then we're going to talk about any of them that are turning points for the for the for the uh, killings. And lastly, we'll talk about the most gruesome ones because I know that's what all you fucking freaks want. So that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> So the first one we're going to talk about is Edward Daniel Moore. So on December 23rd, 1972, Edward Daniel Moore of Seal Beach was murdered. He'd been found with a stocking stuffed into his anal cavity and had suffered bite marks around his genitalia area. Genital area, sorry. Uh, police had investigated a few more, a few friends of his, but to no avail, and no evidence or motive could be linked uh, to any of his friends for the murder. And around this time, Randy was in a relationship with a man named Jeff Graves, but the relationship was starting to sour. So they had an open relationship, but that was beginning to take its toll on Randy. And when Jeff went out with other men, Randy would go out driving, and that's when he did the bulk of his killings. So the next one, we don't even know his name. He was never identified. He was named Joe, John Doe Huntington Beach. So two months after John Doe 16 was found, which was another murder, uh, at 1.30 in the morning on Easter Sunday, a passing driver reported another body lying in the road on Ellis. Unlike John Doe 16, the body they found was dressed and wore socks on its feet. There were no shoes, though. Uh, the man was around 18 with long brown hair that came down to his shoulders. He had a tattoo of a cross on his arm. He also had tattoos of a spider, a swastika, uh, and the number 13 in black on his arms and shoulders. So I don't agree with the swastika, but I don't think he should have been murdered like this. So judging from the scratches on his body, he'd been tossed from a moving vehicle. The cord marks on his wrist indicated he'd been tied up for the last hour or so of his life. Uh, when the police arrived, the first thing they discovered was a dark red stain on the seat of his pants. The autopsy revealed that his genitals had been cut off around 15 minutes before he died, and he'd been sodomized. The medical examiner was not certain of the cause of death. His lips were purple and puffy, which indicated suffocation, but the loss of blood could have killed him too. Because I don't know if you know this, when you cut someone's dick off, they bleed a lot. Uh, and they well, can die from blood loss very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you're... I think that's what... Dude, you're cutting out real bad. Oh my god! Now just say what you just say what you said again. <clears throat> That's it. Um, so, if I'm not mistaken, the ephemeral artery it goes and it kind of just grazes or it intersects the groin area. So yeah, you you cut off a genital, he's gone. It's like yeah, it's like seven minutes or something like that. Something crazy fast, yeah. Uh, so the next one is John Doe 52. He met a much worse fate, uh, and he may have also met it on Easter Sunday, so we have maybe a double killing here. But the coroner couldn't be sure of the actual death. His body was carved up and deposited all around Southern California. Uh, his head was discovered in Long Beach, his arms, right leg, and torso in San Pedro, and his left leg behind a bar in Sunset Beach. So by the time most of his body was assembled on the morgue table, two weeks after the discovery of John Doe Huntington Beach... The body parts were so decomposed that it wasn't possible to tell whether he'd been taking drugs or drinking before he died or where he'd spent his final moments. The medical examiner could say that he'd been tied up like the others. His eyelids had been removed. He'd been castrated as well. And he'd been stored in a refrigerator for a while. So what the fuck, dude? This is, yeah. And his hands were never found. They never found his hands. Which is insane. I mean, it's not that crazy. I guess California's big, but like, that sucks, dude. So, 
around this time as well, Randy was still having a hard time with Jeff, uh, which would explain why the murderer, the murders are becoming more and more violent from now on. Um, because if, uh, definitely a home life would affect, uh, how the killings are going to be happening. So Ronnie Weeb is the next one. He was a victim who actually dispelled the theory that all the other men had been killed by jealous gay lovers. Weeb was a 20-year-old from Fullerton, and his body was found in almost the same Steel Beach location where Eddie Moore had been discovered six months prior. Uh, on July 30th, 1973, at around 6.20 in the morning, officers were called to the eastbound 405 on-ramp at 7th Street in regard to a body lying in the ice plant. <clears throat> The victim was dressed except for his shoes and a sock, which was later found stuffed into his anal cavity, like the others. Uh, his pants were unbuttoned but zipped, and his penis had been partially exposed. There were ligature marks around his neck as well as his facial trauma. No valuables or identification were found on the body. The coroner determined that Ronnie had been dead for two days and that he'd been dumped from a moving vehicle just like the others. There were teeth marks on Ronnie's genitals and stomach, and he'd been tied to the rafters in the building wherever he was killed. The settling blood and the stretch marks on his ankles and wrists showed he'd been suspended from the rafters while his head and chest had hung down. It was believed Kraft had help with this one because he wouldn't have been able to move a 135-pound corpse all by himself, which... Because Randy Kraft, he's not a big guy. Like, he's not a huge dude. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it'd be hard for... Because, like... Carrying a person is one thing who weighs 135 pounds. Carrying 135 pounds of complete, literal dead weight is a little bit more difficult for most people. I mean, well, I don't know, man. Like, he's probably, what, mid-20s, late-20s. He's pro-war. He was in the Air Force. Well, he's anti-war yeah. now. Well, he, he, right. He's anti-war, but he wasn't there in the Air Force. You know, he's working all these jobs. So, yeah, he has to have some physical fitness. So, yeah, but I mean, I it's, I, I don't know. I still don't think that, because like moving a corpse is one thing, but moving it around and throwing it out of a moving vehicle by yourself is, while also not crashing yeah, your car. That, that's okay. That's a little bit more difficult. Oh, yeah. So on December 29th, 1973, hikers discovered 23-year-old Vincent Cruz Mestas, Mestas's body at the bottom of a ravine in San Bernardino. Mestas's was completely clothed except for his shoes and a single sock, which you can probably guess where that was found. Like the other victims, uh, someone had shaved his head and face after he was dead and cut off both of his hands. Uh, the killer had wrapped his bloody stubs in plastic sandwich bags. The hands were, again, never recovered, and a toothpick or small stick had been jammed into his urethra before he died. Now, if I can pop on my profiler hat again here, shaving his head in his face definitely indicates that he is fucking angry at whatever this person represents. So whether he's angry at himself for being gay like John Wayne Gacy, or if he just fucking hates this guy, or is killing around someone who he wants to kill like Ed Kemper did... Shaving someone's head is an extreme show of disrespect for whoever they are. It's an extreme humiliation. Um, it's a sadistic thing. And so I definitely think that he had some type... Obviously, he's angry at someone or something. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But shaving his head is a huge indication of, like, fucking anger. It's, it, 
it's a hate. It's almost like it takes the identity of someone. Yeah, exactly. It's humiliating to shave someone's head like that. Like, oh yeah, it might just be hair, but the the logic behind it is like, I I don't know how to explain it, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typical boot camp dumb like craziness. Like you you go to the barber, your hair gets shaved off. It's like it's like changing an identity. Exactly, taking like, away an identity. Yeah. So on June 2nd, 1974, the naked body of Malcolm Eugene Little, uh, who had just turned 20 years old, which was discovered propped against a mesquite tree on Highway 86. His legs had been spread wide and his genitals were missing uh, and a branch from a nearby tree had been forced half a foot up his rectum. Now you might say half a foot, guys, that's not that bad. That's like average penis length. But a penis is relatively smooth. A tree branch is jagged and fucking like bark and is rough. It's like a sandpaper dildo. Yeah. And that's just all that bleeding. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, not going in smooth. It's not going to go in and come out smooth for sure. It's going to like rip and tear and it's not a good deal for sure. Yeah. All these, all these murders, they're not like, we don't hear knives. We don't hear, you know, it's like fucking. Crazy. I mean, it's like chewing off genitals and shit, dude. Like, there obviously yeah, were knives because he cut off hands and stuff, but like, he's. There's bite marks on their stomachs and shit. Like, there's bite marks on their genitals. Like, he's fucking a monster, dude. He is a fucking monster of a person. He's like bleeding these people out. Basically, yeah. What you know, taking from them who they are and then just leaving them on display, you know? He's insulting them, you know. In life and postmortem. Yeah, exactly. And I wish I could understand what he's so fucking angry about. Because it's not like he's angry at himself for being gay. Because he's he's working in a gay bar. He's in a relationship with another man. It's not like Gacy who was hiding the fact that he was gay. And he he's, killed because he hated being gay. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. what he's so fucking mad about. It can't, and it can't be this you know, open relationship. Because that's something... I would assume people talk about. You know? Well, I mean, it could have something to do with that because he doesn't want to end it with Jeff Graves, but he's really angry because he was he wasn't necessarily angry about the open relationship. It was just, I guess, it was starting to upset him. But like, this is a whole other level past upset. This is like fucking yeah, yeah. craziness. This is wild what he's doing to these people. So on June 22nd, 1964, the naked body of an 18-year-old Marine was found off a dead-end Laguna Beach street near a golf course. Roger E. Dickerson's penis and left nipple showed signs of having been chewed, and he had also been sodomized and strangled. So it is strange, I'll say, that some of them are strangled, some of them are bled out. Like It's weird that they had different methods of killing but now like i said earlier we're not talking about every single one of them so this isn't like chronological uh for the most part because like the next one we're going to talk about is november 29th so like there's no way he stopped from june 2nd to november because he right, doesn't right, right. but so i don't remember exactly if he because with killers it takes them a minute to find what works what makes me shoot you know, like what gets what gets them hard, basically, when they're killing? Is it strangling? Yeah. Is it stabbing? Is it beating them with a fucking hammer? Like it's whatever it's going to be. 
they're not going to know it right away. It's going to take a bit for them to figure it out. So I don't know if he's still figuring it out or if he is just doing whatever he can to kill these people. Yeah, no. So on November 29th, 1974, shortly after four in the afternoon, the Irvine police received a report of a partially nude body near the San Diego freeway. Except for a white blood-soaked t-shirt, 19-year-old James Dale Reeves was naked, face down between two trees, 20 feet off of the southern edge of the road. His white Levi's, stained in the crotch, were in a heap at the base of one of the trees. His legs had been spread apart, making a Y, and a four-foot tree branch was lodged in his rectum. God, yeah, so uh, not a good deal there either. Hang on one second. I got to text Elsa back. (laughs) Okay. We got three more and then the arrest, which isn't going to take long. So the next one, a 17-year-old high school kid from Long Beach uh, was discovered floating in the surf off Sunset Beach on January 3rd, 1975, and his name was John Laros, or Layros. I'm not sure exactly how to say it. Layros? I have no idea. Uh, but he had a wooden surveyor stake in his rectum, and if you don't know what a wooden surveyor stake is, it's a rectangular piece of wood. Uh, it's about, I don't know, maybe a quarter of an inch thick. Uh, from the bottom to the top and then at the end of it it goes to like a point because they stick him into the ground and he had that shoved up his ass which is is not good i just keep saying it's not good i don't like it it's, it's not, not it's no. not good these are all bad yeah they're not they're not things that should go into your butt is what i'm saying like branches and sticks There's- no if you're thinking about those things, if you're thinking about putting stuff in your butt, X those out of your list right now. Yeah, Wooden like, things don't go in your butt. Go to a professional about what can go in your butt. Yes, get a dildo, that, a silicone that can go into your butt, not a piece of wood. Uh, so John Laris uh, had alcohol in his system and had been tied up and strangled to death. His body had been dragged through the sand and dumped in the ocean. Uh, two sets of footprints indicated that two people had dragged the body. So that's what I'm saying. Like, it definitely seems like there's two people involved. 67 murders over a 12-year period is yeah. a fuck ton of murders. It might not so, sound uh, like a lot because it's 12 years, but that's a shitload of killing and not right. getting caught. I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm no longer thinking he's alone, but maybe, maybe this. I don't. Um, I don't think he had help with every single one, but I definitely think he had help with a few. Natural Born Killers. I have not uh, seen that movie yet. I have some. No, it's on my Hulu list. Damn, dude. So it's like that's the movie that ex- inspired um, uh, Columbine. Oh man. Yeah. I see, I can, now, how do you feel about praising it? I'm not praising it. I'm just saying <laughs> uh, it's a couple in the movie, and they're they're both serial murderers. So now I'm thinking maybe it, it's John or Jeff Graves has more to do with this than we actually think. I think Jeff Graves definitely had something to do with it. We're going to get to why nothing ever came of that uh, in a little bit after we talk about these last two. 
So in May 1975, on a Thursday afternoon, three teenagers climbing over the rocks at Bell Gardens discovered something wedged among them. Weeks of decomposition in the salt water and sun had reduced the object to something less than human, but upon closer inspection, the boys discovered it was a skull with rotting strips of flesh still attached to it. So, though police... Uh, though the police scoured the surrounding area, they were unable to find a body to go with the head. And two days later, an x-ray tech was able to identify the body of Keith Crotwell. Uh, Crotwell's friends said he was last seen at a local bar called Ripples. Uh, while the homicide detectives opened up their investigation, Crotwell's friends started a block-by-block search of the area for a black-and-white Mustang, which they'd seen Crotwell leave in. Five days later, they found a vehicle matching that description parked in front of an apartment less than five miles from Ripples, and the following week, the DMV ran the plates, and guess who that vehicle belonged to? Randy Stephen Kraft. So Officer Woodward went to ask Kraft uh, about his whereabouts the night Crotwell went missing. Uh, When the investigator knocked on the apartment door, Kraft invited him inside. When Woodward asked him about the evening of March 29th, the day Crotwell had gone missing, Kraft denied ever meeting him. Uh, the investigator didn't believe Randy was telling the truth, naturally. Uh, there was no evidence that Crotwell was gay, but the area around Ripples was well known for being popular with homosexuals. A likely scenario began to come together for the investigator. The teenager drank too much, found himself propositioned by an older man, and opted for a quick liaison on the Mariana Jetty, or Marina Jetty, sorry. Uh, in the dark, and the du- in the dark, the drunken boy fell to his death in the water and drowned. The older man panicked, fearing that his homosexuality would be discovered and reported, and so he walked away from the accident. But Woodward wasn't all that confident about this theory. <clears throat> he asked Randy Kraft to come down to the station to do an interview. Kraft said he'd been sick recently and didn't feel up to it. And when Woodward walked back to his patrol car, he radioed to headquarters to put Kraft under surveillance. Naturally. But that afternoon, Randy told his roommate he was going to the Long Beach police station to talk to Woodward. So on May 19th, 1975, at 5 in the afternoon, Randy sat down with Officer Woodward and his partner, Detective Bell. And after introducing the two men, Woodward started to take notes. One of the first things he took notes of was that Randy was less rattled than he'd been that morning, and he changed his story. 27 minutes later, the investigation was over. So Randy told investigators he and Keith were driving around together and he decided to let Keith drive. Keith had never driven before and he managed to get the car stuck in some mud. So Randy decided to go back and get Jeff to come help them get the car unstuck. And Keith stayed at the car and when Randy and Jeff got back to help, he was nowhere to be found. Police did drive down the freeway that Randy said he was on and they did find a pull-off that was soft and deep enough that could get a car stuck. And there were also ruts in the mud. So Randy's story somewhat checked out. So on June 1975, uh, was a pretty bad month for Randy. Jeff had called in for qu- Jeff was called in for questioning and a, a, a lie detector test. <laughs> Sorry, I get something in my throat. <coughs> Jeff was called in for questioning and a lie detector test. He passed the test, but it didn't make Randy feel any better. The two detectives who'd interviewed him and Jeff didn't strike Randy as being satisfied with his version of events of the night that Keith had disappeared. His headaches were coming back, and the indigestion and insomnia that had haunted him since college were acting up again. He took some tests to figure out what the root of the issue was, and it was discovered he suffered from hypoglycemia. To make matters worse, especially since the murder he was a murder suspect, he had to be careful with the police. He was charged with lewd conduct following an arrest near Belmont Shore. So he's, he's falling apart at this point, basically. Yeah, like definitely. The walls are closing in, and I think he's fully aware that it's happening. So the same month, his boss laid him off from the first job he'd had since college, which was also the one that he genuinely enjoyed. 
As Randy approached 30, he wanted a more monogamous relationship, and Jeff Graves didn't. The Crotwell business seemed to have pushed Graves over the edge, and Randy too. For the final year they were together, Graves and Kraft were nothing more but roommates, and Jeff was talking. Jeff began talking to Randy about moving out, and eventually did at the end of 1975. But the, by the beginning of 1976, Randy was living with another man in an apartment in Laguna Hills. Randy had met Jeff Sealing, uh, a baker from a well-off Jewish family in Long Beach. And the reason we include this is because after he met this new Jeff, the way the killings were carried out changed a little bit. And the victims were becoming younger as well. So Oliver Peter Molitor was 13. He was discovered on Manhattan Beach on March 21st, 1976. Kenneth Eugene Buchanan was 17 when he was found in Inglewood on April 17th. Larry... Armanderiz? Armanderiz? Yeah. Uh, he was 14 when he was found in Los Angeles on April 19th, and Michael Craig McGee was 13 when he was found at Redondo Beach on July 11th. On August 28th, Wilfred Lawrence Faherty's body was discovered in Redondo Beach as well, and he was 20 when he was shot to death. So he was shot, which is not something we've seen so far. Okay, so you can see the type of victim changed and the murder changed. So for time's sakes, we're going to go ahead and skip ahead to the final murder and what got Randy uh, arrested in the first place. So shortly after 1 in the morning on Saturday, May 14th, 1983, two California Highway Patrol officers pulled over a 1979 Toyota Celica in the southern Orange County community of Mission Viejo. Officer Sterling believed they were going to arrest their second drunk driver of the evening, but they were in for so much more. Sergeant Howard and Officer Sterling had been following Kraft's car in the far right-hand lane for the last few minutes, watching it weave northward and off and onto the freeway shoulder and yada, yada, yada. When the driver made an illegal lane change, they switched on the lights and tried to pull him over. So before actually pulling over, Kraft reached into the back seat to get a dark jacket, which he proceeded to toss onto the passenger seat. When Sterling went onto the PA and ordered the car to pull over, Kraft pulled off the road and parked next to a guardrail on the freeway shoulder. After stopping, Kraft got out and started walking towards the police cars, an indication he had something to hide in the car to hide, according to Sterling, which he definitely did. Uh, he failed a field sobriety test and admitted to having three or four drinks, and while Sterling was handcuffing Kraft, Howard, the other officer, walked up to the passenger still in the car. Howard banged on the window but got no response from Terry Lee Gambrel, who was the passenger. Howard thought he was just really drunk and had passed out, but when he touched the body, it was clammy and cold. Howard lifted the jacket off Gambrel's body and saw his zipper was open and he had peed himself when his bladder relaxed after he died. His, hand were his hands were bound with laces from his shoes. They were fresh pink ligature marks deep into his wrists. His shoes had been removed from his feet and carefully tucked underneath the front seat. At 2.19 in the morning, the on-duty emergency room physician examined, examined Terry Gambrel uh, for vital signs. In less than five minutes, he had declared Terry deceased. Kraft was initially charged with DUI and he and was held in custody as detectives searched his vehicle. In the rear seat, they found a belt which the width had matched the bruising around Gambrel's neck. There was alcohol, tranquilizers, various prescription drugs, and stimulants. Gambrel had no open wounds on his body, but the passenger seat and the floorboards were stained with blood. Under the floorboards, investigators found over 50 photos of young men in suggestive poses. Many of the men in the pictures appeared to be either dead or asleep. I'm going to go with the former. Uh, and finally, in the trunk, they found a three-ring binder containing a handwritten list of 61 coded notations. And some of the, the notations were as follows. Portland, Portland, Denver, Portland, Hawaii, Portland, Blood, Portland, Reserve, Portland, Eck, and Portland, Head. 
It was believed by Oregon State homicide detectives that these entries matched unsolved cases in Portland. Michael O'Fallon was uh, Portland, Denver uh, in the summer of 1980. The one word entry Portland was apparently just a heading uh, and no murder was ever linked to it. Following the Portland entry was GR2, uh, one of the four notations on the list that contained the number two, Dennis Alt and Chris Schoenborn. Uh, two men from Grand Rapids, Michigan, died at the same night. Died on the same night in December 1982, shortly after they had shared a drink with Kraft at the bar of the Amway Grand Hotel. Six years after Kraft was arrested, detectives had pieced together only around two-thirds of this puzzle. Uh, of the 61 entries, detectives managed to match 41 to the murders of young men who had been killed between 1971 and 1983. Two of Kraft's last victims, Eric Church and Terry Lee Gambrell, were never included on the list because he didn't have time to put them on there before he was pulled over. Uh, the house that Randy and Jeff Sealing lived in had been searched the previous evenings. Investigators discovered two foot-long dildos, a jar of petroleum jelly, and a container of Crisco in the nightstand next to the bed Kraft and Sealing shared. Uh, Sidebotham, Doug Storm, and all the rest of the team were curious as to how someone who was so intimate with Kraft could have not known about his late-night prowling activities. Jeff Sealing began by telling police officers that he and Randy were both gay and lived together since Sealing graduated from high school in 1975. He said he was into sadomasochism, but Randy wasn't. Jeff Sealing related to the officers that he and Randy Kraft would sometimes pick up hitchhikers on the freeway and bring them home for sex. However, whenever they had an argument, Randy would drive the highways alone, sometimes going as far as south of San Diego and bringing back, bringing, bringing back hitchhikers to the house. Uh, Jeff confirmed other places that Randy had traveled to that were on that list, which I guess kind of implicated him a little bit. Uh, he also confirmed the, the medication he carried around with him. Sorry, hold on. I'm trying to skip over some stuff because I was outside with the boys. Uh, so, unfortunately, Jeff Graves died of AIDS on July 27, 1987. Uh, at the time he died, the police were gearing up to question him about uh, some more of the murders, but they never got to. If the scorecard was correct, it's believed that Randy had killed 67 men over a 12-year period. Uh, and Randy's trial was the longest and most expensive in Orange County history at the time. It lasted 13 months and cost $10 million, but the appeals process dragged on for even longer. Even though Kraft was arrested in 1983, he did not face trial until 1988, and in 1989, he was convicted of 16 counts of murder, one count of sodomy, and another count of emasculation, which I'm assuming is cutting off someone's dick. Yeah. Uh, as of but... now, as of now, Randy's still on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Uh, he spends his time playing bridge with other inmates on death row. His regular partners have included Lawrence Bitteker, known as Pliers, Douglas Clark, the Sunset Strip Slayer, and someone ironically, William Bonin, the other freeway killer, uh... Together, they're convicted of 41 murders, and if the police are correct, uh, the true tally of their killings is close to 100 dead, with Kraft being responsible for around 60% of that total. Jesus. Yeah, dude. Pretty fucked up guy. Um, so that's Randy Stephen Kraft, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that you guys enjoyed our new host, Chris. I think he did a great job. Uh, I'm going to get his Instagram and stuff, and we'll talk about it on the next, next episode, but you can follow the show at The Chilling Truth Podcast uh, on Instagram. Be sure to go leave us a five-star review. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys next week. Later.